calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at MT Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, best-selling novelist and we're doomed, man! We're doomed! <laughs> this is episode 17 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Today, we are talking about Scott's favorite film of all time, Aliens, released in 1986 and directed by James Cameron. 1986, when I still had a luscious head of hair. <laughs> beautiful. If you are a regular listener of Story Smack, you know that we had all kinds of swagger. <laughs> we had all kinds of sass when we promised you we were going to do an Aliens watch along where we record our commentary over the entire movie and you guys could play it and watch along with us. And there we were. It would be as if we were with you eating your popcorn and using your bathroom. Uh, but the best laid plans of mice and xenomorphs, they often go awry. We were watching it on DVD using a PS4 as our Blu-ray player. And uh, we initially discovered that throughout the first, the, about the first 15 minutes of mm -hmm. Aliens or so, there's absolutely nothing to talk about. So our commentary was non-existent. Yeah, and, well, and there's not a lot that the characters say either in, say, the first 10 minutes because they're going on to the, the found ship, the, found, the salvage ship finds them and whatever. It's... Terrible, actually, because no, we're like, hey, aliens, and then nothing happened. Dead, dead silence. It was boring. It was. So we were waiting for good stuff to begin so we'd have something finally interesting to say. When about 20 minutes in, I moved the popcorn bowl and hit the PS4 controller just right to throw the movie into reverse. Uh, and of course, since we are um, perfectly synced, you know, you were supposed, we had a countdown so that you would start your aliens experience the exact same moment we started the movie. So we'd be there along with you. Um, we had to start over. So I took the remote control away, moved it to the other side uh, from Kid Popcorn Bowl. So you would not do that again. <laughs> and the recording, we had to start it over. So it'd be one unedited cut. So it'd sync with you guys. And we restarted the movie, restarted recording, and we had at it again. Mm-hmm. So now we're back to trying to come up with something to say for the second, second time, time yes. while watching that first 15 or 20 minutes again, again, boring, not all that much going on. Yeah. We make it to 25 minutes and the dog of doom jumped up, jumped up on the couch to lie down next to Scott and put her paw right on the controller. And, and this time the movie shot forward at 10 times normal speed. Uh, by the time I grabbed it, and got it back, the take was already ruined because we, had, we didn't know, there was no way to stop the recording, go back and edit it in and still keep it perfectly synced. So now we're an hour into this process and we would have had to start a third time. We said, screw it. And we watched an episode of The League. 
Yeah. So we scrapped the idea for several reasons, but not the least of which was the sort of the technical issues. Yes. Uh, and today we're simply going to talk about the movie itself as a normal episode of Story And it's, it actually works out well. It's well-timed because Alien's Covenant is out on April 26th. We are recording this the morning of April 26th. So I haven't seen Covenant yet. And since it's a sequel to Prometheus, I just assume that if I watch Covenant, I'll be all mad and won't want to record anything like I was when I watched Prometheus. Mm -hmm. So this works out very well. Aliens was a sequel to the 1970 movie Alien, also directed... Oh, no, this one directed by Ridley Scott. Yeah, the Alien first was one. directed by Ridley Scott, yes. Alien 3 then came out in 1992, directed by David Fincher. Not, not a fan of that flick. Of course, Aliens is um, James Cameron, and uh, we're, that's what we're talking about right now. Yeah, and you know, David Fincher, David Fincher and Ridley Scott are both hugely successful movie makers. This just wasn't... I they mean, Aliens 3 was just not the movie didn't for David for Fincher. Right. So, uh, 1997's Alien Resurrection, directed by Jean-Paul Genet, is technically the most recent movie right. in the Alien storyline, but that's because Prometheus yes. is a sequel. In the timeline, Prometheus is a, a, a prequel. Yeah. A horrible mess of a nonsensical, science-free, woo-filled, illogical prequel. And totally. I have nothing, I have no disagreement with you there. It's a terrible movie. And Covenant is the second prequel. So mm -hmm. the pre-prequel. Or maybe it's the... No, it's the... Maybe Prometheus was the pre-prequel. Prometheus is the pre-pre-prequel. Covenant right. is the pre-prequel, and then we have Alien Awakening, which would be the prequel, which is the release date yet to be determined. Uh, we're going to talk about the movie Aliens. This movie, yes. Yeah. Talk about the movie Aliens. Finally, we'll get to it. And after that, we have a lovely list of fun facts that you may not know about the movie Aliens, 30th anniversary of facts. Grab from our pals over at bloodydisgusting.com. You and your list of things <laughs> I did not know. My motto is, why should I do the work when others have done the work for me? It's really the American way. It oh, is. Oh, and before we begin, I want to mention that Scott has a brand new alien story in the hardcover anthology, Aliens Bug Hunt, mm -hmm. out now from Titan Books. It has stories from Jonathan Mayberry, uh, Yvonne Narrow, Larry Correa, and a bunch more that I can't think of off the top of my head. Scott's story, Dangerous Prey, is the first ever story told from the Xenomost point of view. And this is um, a Fox endorsed yeah, it's book. Canon. So it's, it's canon. Well, sort of canon. Where there's a little bit of there's some technical issues with the book, but yeah. which we won't get into, where a couple things are out of out of order in mm -hmm. the canon, but mm -hmm. they were very, very, very specifically in my canon, um, I explained absolutely everything you have seen in Alien, Aliens, and in the both those two movies, all the all the biology and yeah. the behavior. I explained absolutely everything. And they, they were not they so dialed keen it back. On they that, dialed yeah. it back. But to be fair, yes. they dialed it back. They didn't make you make up woo and put it in there because they, but because this is still canon. So I actually read this right before we watched mm -hmm. Alien. I read your Dangerous Prey story. Yes, and. If any of you are, are true Sigler junkies, you should go ahead and do that if, if you're gonna if you're thinking about watching Aliens because you'll see a lot of things like oh yeah oh cool oh yeah. So I got some great help in the story from Chris Grawl, who is a U.S. military vet who helps me all the time with my books. He helped me with nonverbal communication and tactics used by special forces, so a lot of real-world military stuff uh, to show the ways the xenomorphs work together in packs, even though they don't have a language. And uh, that and Fox insisted they could not speak and could not have a language. So we had to work mm. that around. And as Hudson would say in the movie, they're animals, man. Um, Fox, you know, they, I had to use real world tactics and logic to show how a quote animal, end quote, could use the, um, 
the integrative tactics and decision-making abilities we see in the movies, which we're going to talk about when we talk about aliens. I also got a lot of help from Dr. Gwen Pearson, entomology PhD, for helping me out with the real science behind all of the things we see in the Aliens movies. Right. And Gwen, Gwen Pearson, is also better known online as Bug Girl. And mm-hmm. she also runs the Purdue Bug Bar. And she's awesome. She's a friend of mine and now a friend of yours. She's great, great, great. And you should follow her online. She was fantastic. And even with those consultants, Fox insisted a lot of what the xenomorphs do remain a mystery. So I'm telling you guys, I was so proud of this. I had blanket blanket coverage on everything you've seen and how it all worked and why they did all the things they do, even down to copying the mantis shrimp's punching mechanism for explaining the secondary set of jaws. Um, they didn't want to get too locked down with that actual canon. So they, they wanted more amorphous things so that, you know, they didn't want fans to come back to my story and say, but it wasn't like that in the story and that was canon. Right. And, you know, I, I know that made you super mad and I understand that, but in another way, it kind of makes sense because as we talk about a lot mm-hmm. on this show, too many rules of storytelling or or too many confines of storytelling and the storytelling ability kind of takes yeah. a hit. Yeah. And I, I think you, they don't have as much freedom there. Yeah, the storytellers, if you lock it with too much canon, it weighs it down, which now I'm finding out in GFL 6 and 7, which is an right. enormous, enormous amount of heavy lifting because we have to account for everything there. So I did object to it at first. Uh, and probably because it was so fucking cool. It was so cool. Yeah. But I do see their point, and, and I I'll think it's say, okay. I, I'll say, like I said, I just read Dangerous Prey. It is still super cool. It is still real-world science. It's just not as much of it, and mm-hmm. that's fine, because still, if you read that and watch this, you'll be like, oh, I see you. I see you, <laughs> I see you man. I see okay. you there. Yeah. Uh, so that is Aliens Bug Hunt, yes. Alien Bug Hunt from Titan Books. And you can get it at bookstores, at Amazon, find links at scottsigler.com slash books, whatever your local favorite is. Mm-hmm. Scroll down until you see the xenomorph smiling at you on our page. But now, yes. let's get on to the movie. This is the best movie of any kind ever, period, of hands any, down. Of any this kind. is it. This is the best movie ever made. I'm stuck on the any kind part. I any, mean, that's a bold, bold yeah, claim, it's not, sir. It's not like, oh, it's the best horror movie. It's the best sci-fi movie. It's the best movie, period, hands down. Okay, so yes. here's the thing. It is the Citizen Kane of Citizen Kane's. Oh, well, I mean, it's the alien of Citizen Kane's, <laughs> I think. But this will serve. This is a hugely, hugely, hugely famous, very good, very popular movie. If you have not seen it, it's 30 years old, almost. <laughs> no, uh, it's over this, 30 years It's old. over 30 years old. This is your spoiler alert. We're going to talk in detail about a, a specific things that happen in a, in a sequel. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't watched Alien and you haven't watched Aliens, this is your spoiler alert. Shut it off. Go watch it. Come back. It'll be worth it. You should go watch it. Yes. Ready? Okay. So ready to get into the movie? Yes. Let's talk about the movie itself. FDO, normally I kind of start off here, but since this is your jam, mm-hmm. why don't you lead us off? We get into the movie. Uh, they, the salvage guys find Ripley. And I'll have an interesting point about that when I get to my facts that you don't know about aliens. And <laughs> so we're like reading our time signature, thinking back to our live recording. Six minutes and 53 minutes into the movie, there's been no dialogue. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ripley. Oh, my gosh. Ripley wakes up. Uh, she's been gone for 57 years. She drifted right through the core systems, as they say in the movie. Yeah. And it's just blind luck that somebody picked her up. And they say that, too, actually. Yep. Burke says that, too, that it's just dumb luck that the salvage uh, ship found you. Yes. So we've moved. And that's 
good storytelling structure. They move things ahead. So they allow basically from the time Ripley closes her eyes and gets in cryostasis to when she wakes up, they found a way to explain all of the facilities and the people and everything else in yeah. that we see in this movie in Aliens. And it's really nice because it comes back throughout the movie. Uh, there's, the, there's the moment where she realizes that Bishop, who is one of the crew members, is um, an android. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, what does he say? He prefers artificial, artificial human. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is so commonplace 57 years after Ripley goes into cryostasis yeah. that they're like, I mean, I didn't mention it because... Water is wet. Like they, they <laughs> literally have our, and it's beautiful. That's a one scene. Uh, Paul, we'll talk about the characters, but Paul Reiser plays Carter, Carter Burke, Carter, Carter Burke, Burke. Mm-hmm. and he's a smarmy jerk. He's great. And, and in this moment, he is true. He, it's beautiful. You know, he's kind of. I think he might be retired now, but he kind of is known for what was that Helen Hunt show? Mad about you. Mad about you. Yeah. Which is totally different characterization. And in that moment, I'm all in. I'm like, he's. He plays this smarminess, but he has to have a real person behind it too, or else he's just a caricature. And mm-hmm. in that moment, his surprise at her, like, I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't even water's think, wet, didn't think right, about it. Uh, is beautiful because it it makes him a more whole shit heel of a character, but a more whole <laughs> shit heel. <laughs> <laughs> so we get about nine minutes in. We're in the boardroom meeting where we get our info dump. A lot of times in the show, we talk about things in storytelling styles. It's called exposition. So you're able to recap everything that happened in the Alien movie in a very short term and then transition over into the the growing plot, which is, yeah, LV-427, there's uh, the planet where this happened. There is a whole colony there, 60 or 70 families, the shake and bake operation, terraforming. So we're able to put in a large number of bodies, which we need to have a large number of bugs later on. A couple of things, uh, I'll mention one of the few things I noticed one of the new things I noticed, and it's probably over the may, at least the hundredth time I've watched this movie, mm-hmm. um, 12 minutes and 39 seconds into the theatrical version, there's a shot of Ripley's hand, which is hanging down, and it looks an awful lot like a face hugger. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah it does. It yeah. does. It's nice because these are the things that make really, really just damn near perfect movies damn near perfect. Mm-hmm. You've seen it a hundred times, and it stopped your... it. it it sort of took you a little out of the story to realize, oh, that's a face. That's the same because right. it's so, it's cropped so close. You can't see your fingertips. You can't see your wrist. Mm-hmm. And it does look a it lot exactly like a face like, hugger. Exactly like the it's side so of a smart. face hugger. It's he's great. such a talent. I mean, I know he did that uh, Avatar movie, but he's yeah. so talented. Well, he's, you know, t- Terminator. Yeah, he's aliens. so talented. Just those two movies alone are are unbelievable. Well, but even Titanic, which is such a big, huge... Uh, it's a huge success. Che- it's a huge success, but it's also a huge cheesy movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's a huge, fun romance movie, mm. and it's still really so incredibly well done. And what was the Ed Harris one, the underwater one? Um, we'll think about it a second. Yeah, we'll also fucking amazing. So we're 18 minutes into the movie, and we're telling you the time for a reason in this one, so you can track it along if you watch it yourself, but also because this is important, uh, how long we go before we see the bad guys in this movie. We're 18 minutes in, the Marines wake up. The whole crew wake, wakes up. Mm-hmm. And we have that scene you were just talking about with um, Bishop, when we find out Bishop is a robot. Mm-hmm. And they mention he is a Hyperdyne Systems robot. Mm-hmm. And we had stopped the movie and looked it up. So I'm waiting. Isn't that from Terminator? Terminator is Cyberdyne. And, but in the first draft of Aliens, which was written by Cameron, he got to write the sequel. It was cyber. It was Hyperdyne in the first draft. No, Cyberdyne in the first draft because he did Terminator and he was basically giving himself an Easter yeah. egg. And at some yeah, point, yeah. either he said, that's no good, or somebody said, no, you can't do that. 
Right, right, which is strange. I mean, James Cameron is not terribly well known as a director for for adding Easter eggs to his things, but when he does, they are so subtle and mm-hmm. so sweet. Uh, and this is one of one of the things I think he probably could have gotten away with had Terminator not been such an enormously successful franchise. So at the same time he's doing this, he's plotting further Terminators too. Yes. And that's kind of colliding worlds a little, even though they're both earthbound worlds. But he does that very rarely, but they're very good. Very good. And there'll be some more tips about that or uh, points about that and the things you don't know. And who's the who's top? Uh, what's top's actual? A poem. Okay, a poem. Yeah. yeah. He is my favorite because he gets up out of cryosleep. The first thing he does is put his cigar in his mouth, yeah. which means he goes into cyber sleep with it between his index finger and his middle finger. It's awesome. <laughs> and then good. I've actually no idea what he's actually referencing because I have forgotten because I just decided I'm going to drop into the empty set work ethic a lot of times when we're when we're dilly-dallying around. I'm going to be like, okay, get your assholes and elbows in order. He says something about assholes and elbows. Assholes and elbows. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I'm like, I am doing this from now on. I am now a, to- a, a drill sergeant. <laughs> He's one of the best best characters in this. So about 24 minutes in, Ripley starts addressing the Marines, which is they truncate this. I mean, this would be an opportunity to have a whole info dump or more exposition. But we already know. And Cameron is excessively aware that everyone who is watching Aliens, when it came out, has probably already seen Alien. So he doesn't do a lot of he doesn't do a lot of rehashing. So Ripley gives this starts to tell a story. It's disjointed. It's emotional. She has trouble getting through it. The uh, Marines, of course, are all hard-ass tough guys. And like, oh, just, just tell me where they are. And then once that blows up, the Lieutenant Gorman is like, okay, well, you have her, you have her information, so go read it. Mm-hmm. So a real subtle script writing method to be like, okay, now we've established that all of these Marines know everything that happened to Ripley, everything that Ripley reported. So well, everybody's on the same page. and they're dubious. We, we also learn they're, because they're young, yeah, they are you know, dubious, they're kind of, yeah. I, I forgive the stereotype, but they're totally soldiers, all of them, men, women, both, are all kind of young, dumb, full of cum kind of mm-hmm. soldiers, right? They're badass, and they know it, and they're not wrong, and they're a cohesive team, you learn that too in the locker room scene that they work well together even though some are pilots and some are fighters and they all have and one's a medic and they all have different jobs they really are a cohesive team that has done well together you learn that too in Mm -hmm. in non-expository ways and so they that that moment you also learn like they're a little dubious about ripley they're a little dubious about their new lieutenant because all they need is each other and they're top and they're fine yeah uh and then that actually, I think that actually works a little, just a little bit after that, they start getting, you know, the, the top comes in and is all like, I need this by, by 0830 and you have seven hours to do this and go. And they're mm-hmm. all like, fuck, right. like they're mad about it. And then right after that, the next scene, one of the next scenes is Ripley coming back onto the, the flight deck or whatever it is, the loading and, and. Being like, yeah, I sort of feel like a fifth wheel here. What mm-hmm. can I do? And they're like, and I don't Tom, know. What can you do? Yeah, Tom says exactly <laughs> that. And he's not shitty exactly about it, but he's like, I know my people. I don't know you. Yeah. And uh, she's like, I could, I could drive that loader. I have class two license. And they're all, oh, okay. Go crazy. And then she does. And it's perfect because they're, they, they laugh sort of happily surprised. And that kind of shifts the dynamic back yes. again where now – Top is like, oh, I got you. I dig you, girl. I, I feel you. And that will influence his team who's so dedicated to him. Yes. And that's really, I think, you know, I don't have military experience myself, but I'm an army brat. And mm-hmm. 
I think that is sort of how that dynamic works uh, from what I, I, the very little I can tell. And up until that moment, she's known shorthand amongst the Marines as Snow White. So she's just this, this consultant who's along and she's going to be a burden and pain in the ass. And at and that she moment, quote unquote saw an alien, she saw an alien, like whatever. And at that moment, she is now at least in some small way, become a working member of the crew and their mm-hmm. attitude toward her changes, which is all part of the layered foreshadowing he does because she winds up being, she winds up saving several lives by, because she's the one who will make a decision. Yeah. And that's, you learn. So you stay, uh, the Lieutenant and Ripley start out kind of both the, the crew being kind of de- dubious about yes. them. Mm-hmm. And then there's that subtle switch where they're like, all right, well, she got, she's got this one thing going yeah. on. And then later on, the poor new lieutenant who, of course, doesn't have, on, you know, he doesn't, he learned not on the streets, but in books, he doesn't have a ton of experience. That starts to fail them. And they, that's why they can trust Ripley when it's time to trust Ripley, I think. And you see that in the drop scene when Marines are, are plummeting, which is one of the, one of my favorite cinematic sequences, the whole drop scene it, you know, it looks like real life. That is the way things with dirty Marines, sweaty Marines, uh, the ships who get low- increasingly sweaty as that two yeah. minute scene goes on. They go which down is so nice. and some of them are, most of them are like, whatever, they've done this a thousand times. And we establish that Ripley is a little bit nervous, but she's been through worse shit. So she's like, okay. And then she notices, she starts yeah, to smell Yeah, she can out. smell, right, exactly. She smells out that Gorman is a douchebag. Yeah. How many drops is this for you, Lieutenant? And he's like, 37. Simulated. How many combat drops? Two, Two including, including this, this one. one. <laughs> and like that, that helps. Uh, it, 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 that as the screenplay goes, that helps set the stage for his incompetence. Until now, we've seen he's been a little bit aloof and he's too good to eat with a grunt, so to speak. Now we're like, oh shit, we have somebody who has no experience leading what we all know is going to be a very dangerous mission. And then, of course, his decision making ability falls apart later on. So, uh, one more point about that particular scene that I love so much is. In the scene that I mentioned where she gets in the loader and goes to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when they all load into the uh, mobile, the vehicle, mm-hmm. uh, then that, that gets loaded onto the plane that's going to land or right. the ship that's going to land. I mm-hmm. mean, it is, it is bizarre to watch that in 2017 because it is, they are impractical things today. Um, like what? Well, the... <laughs> I mean, th- these are both practical things to move people, move humans, move cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. Today, y- like, I can't imagine, like, I can't imagine the mech of the loader that looks like a fucking transformer. I can't imagine that ever being in play in the real world, ever, at okay. all. And and now, especially, it looks just like a transformer. It looks totally <sighs> like, it, 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 like, it's so impractical. Like, why would she have to move, actually lift her feet to lift the mechanism? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, I, I, oh you're talking about the loader. The yeah. loader. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I that's got confused so with the APC. It's cool to look at. But well, it's they're they're actually totally work, they're working on stuff like they are the military is actively working on power armor and you know assistant and physically assisted things, and actually that's might be how it'll actually work. You well, know, I don't you think they'll do feet. that for people. I think they'll do that like they'll make machines. They'll make those robots that Boston Dynamics is making move equipment, mm-hmm. and you won't have to be inside the equipment to move it. That's I what think, they're working on. They're, but I don't for think soldiers. so. I think that's that's body armor for being in. I don't think you're going to be moving boxes of of meals ready to eat. I think those those uh, body armor things are going to be tighter and lighter and whatever for combat. 
Right. The the combat, the augmented strength suits that they're working on is to make you run faster, jump higher, be more that strong. That I get. But you don't think uh, you don't think from a loading perspective that a machine that just kind of lets you do mostly your natural movements as a as a human to do things? Well, to be fair, uh, if that was the case, they would already be using that in microsurgeries, but they don't do that. What happens is the doctor sits at a at a at a a, a, a console and and does actually do like puts his hands into mechanisms that then a robot does your teeny tiny microsurgery. Yeah. But he's 10 feet away in a that's, secure room. Okay. But he's still, not, that's the same thing. It's emulating your movements. It's sort of the same oh, thing. Oh, I that's see what, what you're I'm saying. saying. She it's would be more remote from the suit. Yes. Because then she could do this. Doot, 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 doot. Walk that to bay 12 because that's what Top wants. Mm-hmm. And then... And then work a different one and say, take this there. And she could be more efficient not having to move her feet and her knees to walk a box of crap to Bay 12. It doesn't seem practical. There's a, there's a couple of other ones. I feel like having to load everyone into the APC to then load it into the ship to then drop it mm-hmm. makes no sense at all. Because well, I think the that ship, makes great sense. Because the ship itself is already positioned before they leave Earth, presumably, mm-hmm. exactly over the the pod bay doors, so to speak. Like, because all they do is release the latches, then the doors open and they drop. Yeah. Which also wouldn't fucking happen in space. Hello, gravity, but whatever. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, slow down, slow down. What, why, why is dropping the um, flying vehicle with the tank already in it, with the APC armor personnel carrier already inside of it? Let's start with that. Why is that bad? Well, it's not, no, that is the good, that is how I think it would be. Uh-huh. It would be that way. It would be the, ar- the, armored personnel carrier would be on the dropship and they would walk up the ramp like they do 17 other times in the movie get into the to the APC and go that way they they they're built to go together mhm they do go together yes so then why is the APC 25 feet away and they load in there and drive it into the ship and then drop the ship. Well, they probably, they have to do systems checks and evaluate the machine and all those yeah. other things. It just, to me, it seems a, a little bizarrely inefficient because the APC would have to be stored for takeoff and all that other stuff. So it's just, there are a little few anachronistic things that sort of feel like early eighties to me. Um, okay. And then the last one is when they're actually going through the atmosphere and going to land on uh, LV 426 or whatever yes. it's called. Um, the screen that they are looking at to, to land by, by equipment mm-hmm. looks so much like Pong, it's amazing. It's a little, it's a little stripped down. We'll call it utilitarian. Fair, and, and that might be fair too. It's just, for me, it seems... It, and I, I will give you this. These are storytelling devices as well. Watching Hudson lock them all in, and then, yep, we're good to go, let's go. Mm-hmm. I get. From a practical standpoint, that doesn't make as much sense. I'm not sure I agree. I think that the that the practicality of you have, because once the, you have two parts to a vehicle, sure. so you load your people into the APC, you have time to do system checks in the APC and check everything, make everything's okay, then you probably, have, they, I don't know if they have a backup APC, they have a backup dropship. So then you take your APC and you drive it into, now it's, everything's working, it's working, now we load it in. If you load it in and there's a problem due to transit, right. and then you have to unload it and you can't move it, that's difficult. So Yeah, but it's also difficult if somehow there's like, I don't know, some kind of turbulence because you're just hitting the atmosphere and your APC actually hits the wing of your plane or the landing gear of your plane and now you don't have an APC and you don't have a plane. 
It so, doesn't make any sense. If you've, got, if you've got the thing in the ship, there's more mass in the ship to shift around if there's any kind of turbulence. So you separate the two parts, you're able to lock them down a little bit better. Yeah. And then you let the android drive it up the ramp and hope he does it just fine. That's all. I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Yeah. I think that there are people on the ground who would lock that shit in tight and make it just like they ship things all over the world, make it safe inside the shipping vehicle, so to speak, and not not provide for human or artificial human error as much as they could. And I feel like just, hey, park that APC 30 feet away. Everybody will climb in, and then you're going to drive it like the Batmobile up the ramp. Seems a little impractical. Okay, last, last point of order on this. Would you load your armed your soldiers into an APC that's in the dropship and not drive the APC out and check everything at any point so that you get them down to the planet and this thing has been in stasis inside the dropship for as long as many light years it takes it to LB-426. See, this is interesting because we're saying the same thing. I'm saying that those things practically would be separate. No point in loading everybody in unless you already know it works. Once you know it works, lock it in, Oh, everything's done, then load yeah. the people in, then go. There's, there's not... I, the way that thing is built... And if anybody in the military or uh, uh, aliens experts want to comment on this, that's great. The way the thing is built, it's you're not designed to be able to get out of the APC once it's inside the dropship. It's a very snug fit so that it can drop and go. There, you don't get into the AP. You get into the APC, which seals up. Then that go backs up into I, the. I thing. totally, I totally agree. They could design it so it also loads the same way the plane loads, so everybody goes in from the back. It's possible. Yeah, it it's is. super minor that. that we're talking for two minutes or three minutes about it because yeah. it's a really minor point I was making but I feel like load everybody in like the same point you were making about being on the ground on the terraforming planet I was making on the I was making on the ship so we're 35 minutes of the movie they land they move to facility there's a ton of suspense here for nothing happening so we've got our well-disciplined military unit moving in two squads moving in um and storytelling wise, this is almost, it's rope-a-dope by Cameron. Are you familiar with the phrase rope-a-dope? I am. For those of you who are at home, maybe not rope, don't know rope-a-dope, that was Muhammad Ali, which was he would put his gloves up near his face and he would just roll back onto the, the ropes and let people swing at him, knowing he could dodge, and punch themselves out. So he was, it was a misdirection tactic. Cameron here is, in a weird way, giving you a ton of tension, which then doesn't pay off which then creates more tension because he has he has broken the rules. Normally in a movie, you get this much tension. Oh, and then there's a jumping cat. You get this much tension, and then there's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. He gives you all this tension without any kind of real payoff. So now when the tension starts, I felt more nervous watching the rest of the scenes in the movie because I don't know it's not going to go the way it's supposed to go. Right, and it already hasn't gone the way because you are supposed to get that little payoff and then feel superior because you know something maybe yeah, characters and, don't. Yes, I knew that was um, coming. I knew that was coming. Right. And I, I think that um, the, the uh, oh, I think this is a little further down the line. I jumped ahead, I think. So they keep going. I was, all I was going to say is sort of this moment in time was also the same problem with the watch along. Would have been mm-hmm. the same because there's a lot of walking and looking oh, yeah. and walking and looking and walking and looking and then Gorman looking and then Gorman saying nothing. And then except his face is full of surprise. So it literally would have been us just narrating yeah. Yeah. The, the visuals of the movie. To, uh, to quote Office Space, is horrible, this idea. That would have been terrible. So 43 minutes in, we see the face hugger, which is a foreshadowing. That, of course, this is Chekhov's face hugger. We see it. It's going to come back later. It's the face hugger, half vagina, half penis, add in spider legs. They're gross. They're gross. They thought they're just, they're just gross. I'm not gonna lie. They, the legs look a little um, 
king crab leggish. They do. So they do look a little tasty. They do. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. So we do the motion tracker scene where they find Newt and there's lots of low slung shots. Um, and now 46 minutes in, we start to get into the real, the, the heavy lifting, the foreshadowing. What makes this movie so work so well and why it's such a huge influence on my own writing career is the invisible foreshadowing that you don't see the first time when you go back and watch it. There's many of them. When they find Newt, she runs away from the Marines and we're effortlessly shown how she moves under the four floors and through the air ducts. It's just a couple of Marines trying to catch a little kid. It's no big deal. But those the, the floor and the air ducts wind up being huge influences later in the movie. So when you see it happening later in the movie in an action scene, you don't think about it at all. It's just completely integrated. Mm-hmm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Now, this is interesting. You see Newt, 47 minutes in, in the theatric version, we see Newt, and Ripley takes an immediate shining to Newt. And in the director's cut, we learn that Ripley had a daughter mm-hmm. who aged and died of old age while Ripley was still in cryosleep. Right. And Ripley has been cheated out of the experience of seeing her own seven-year-old daughter, which is the same age, I believe the same age as Newt. So in the director's cut... Her, it makes so much makes more so sense. Much yeah, more sense. it really does. In the theatric version, it's like, well, okay, she's a doesn't seem like a nice lady who just happily take in a kid. It's a little weirder in the theatrical version. I so totally So that's agree. one of the things you lose. Although, I will say, there is a nice callback moment, which stays, in, which was in the theatrical release, at the beginning when um, Ripley is found and she's in the hospital ship mm-hmm. and she first meets Carter Burke. She The first experience she has with him, we find out after a moment, is a dream. Mm-hmm. Where a chest burster comes right out of her chest, and right. and then there's a moment where they're looking through the the facility and they find a live human, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful, subtle callback to Ripley, the same experience that we see in Ripley's dream, right? Where she says, like she starts to feel something in her chest, and she looks at Carter Burke and says, "Kill me, please." Mm-hmm. And then the woman who's actually in the lair and has and is an embryo carrier says exactly that. And then exactly what happens in Ripley's dream happens to that oh, woman. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. never a mention. Ripley watches it, but doesn't go like, mm-hmm. Like nothing, <laughs> which is so subtle and nice because it 
then calls back that anxiety that you found out first, and now you're so much more invested in these characters as a viewer, and you're like, ooh, things are bad. They show it to you, find out it's a dream, that lets you off the hook, and later on the exact same thing happens, and it's not a dream. Exactly. And I really analyze the shit out of the movie this time, even though I've done it before, but this for the, for you guys, we take, we pay attention. We do the nuts and bolts. 53 minutes into the movie, 53 minutes in, there has been no violence. There has been Ripley's fake chestburster, right? Where she had a dream. We were just talking about that. And we've established that the face hugger pressed its little vagina penis spider legs against the glass. Mm-hmm. That's it. 53 minutes in to a incredibly violent sci-fi horror movie. Not one act of violence yet. Isn't that crazy when you think about it? Yeah, a lot of sweat, a lot of dirt, a lot of fronting by yeah. the Marine team. Chest thumping and yeah. armor pounding and but- all of that good shit. So 55 minutes in, uh, they first get into the tunnels. Now, here is where I really saw a lot of things about Cameron is taking the reins from Ridley Scott in one of probably the most successful horror movie of all time, Alien, the original one. It completely changed the way a lot of horror movies were made. So Cameron can't just go run off and do his own thing. They get into the tunnels and Gorman asks Ripley, Gorman's lieutenant, he said, he leans through over Ripley, says, what's that? Referring to all the secreted tunnels and the aliens tunnels. And she, she answers, I don't know. And this is the moment, which is a big flag to the audience that now we are side by side with Ripley. Yeah. Right. We know as much as she does. All the characters, all of us, we're all, we don't know what's coming. None of us have any idea what's going on. It's a subtle technique that I think marks the real starting point of this story. Up until that moment, it's all a continuation of Alien. And at 55 minutes, Aliens truly begins. Mm-hmm. Fair. Yeah. 57 minutes in, still haven't seen the monsters. Uh, they collect, they realize they're under a thermonuclear reactor um, and they collect all of the armor piercing rounds. The magazines have the armor piercing rounds, which is one of the movie's very few giant continuity plot errors. They take away Vasquez and um, Drake, who have the big machine guns, which are actually made of camera gimbals. Mm-hmm. They took camera gimbals so you could have the balanced camera and turn them in weapons. They take their their firing pins, if you will. And then they have their own firing pins sneaked away. Okay, so they stash firing pins. But then for the rest of that scene, the rest of the battle scene, they're on point. They're up in front of they everybody are, they are. pointing their weapons that are supposed to not work and the sergeant is right behind them. Yeah. So, no, no, it's true. That's, that's a little a, I mean, there's a, I think there's one gigantic problem with this movie and we are going to probably brawl about it in a okay. little bit here. But, okay. um, so, but you're totally right about that. And I never noticed. And I think it's because... Uh, Vasquez especially is always fronting. She is always on point. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, just feels and smells like her, so to speak. And we get 59 minutes in, we're almost to the good stuff. And Cameron is still using the visuals from the last movie to build tension. Uh, people are cocooned, which was not in Alien. However, it is in Cocoon. The- <laughs> it's Wilford Brimley Jr. going to bust some ass. Uh, it is in deleted scenes from Alien. There is scenes of Dallas uh, uh, being cocooned in, in Alien. The, the, the cut scenes, and you can find those on YouTube if you look hard enough. So, but th- so that's still Ridley Scott's movie. But, so now we're seeing people who have died from the chestbursters, a gradual thing, so we know that there's things afoot. We also see shriveled up facehuggers, which have mm-hmm. completed their mission. And unfolded empty eggs. So Cameron's mm-hmm. still like, here's all of the stuff you've seen. It looks a little bit different now. Oh, shit. What's going to happen? And then 60 minutes in, we get to talk senior talking about, with the survivor, uh, please kill me. So this is the other, really one of the other big shifts from movie one to movie two, 
is the people in Aliens are aware of everything. They know about the facehuggers. They know things are going to come out of their chest. They know they're going to be victims. That's why they asked to be killed. This is completely different than Alien where it was all a mystery. So it's a big... It's well done by Cameron in that he knows we know what's coming, so he's not trying to reinvent the wheel and like, oh, these people should be scared that they don't know what's going to happen. Right. The audience knows what's going to happen, so we're not going to waste the audience's time. We're just going to get them caught right up. It's it's another factor that puts us side by side with the characters. We aren't watching them. We're discovering things with them. And then an hour in, this shit hits the fan. We get into the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that was interesting watching it through this time and now when the battle starts, Cameron isn't hiding the xenomorphs. He's not hiding the aliens. Sure. In Alien, you don't even see the thing till two, three, uh, 75% of the way through the movie. Sure. As soon as the battle starts, we see them coming out of the walls. He doesn't hide them at all because he's got a trump card to play. Yeah, he has the queen to play. He has the queen to play. Yeah. Although it's, it's also very, um, speaking, talking about what you were talking about, where you, at one moment, we transition, and now we're right there with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a way to up-level that tension. The, oh my goodness, this is way worse than I had thought. Because there are moments like when she's doing the debrief after she wakes up for like the the Hydrodyne Systems uh, uh, owners or COOs or whatever. And mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, this, yes, I blew up that entire ship. And you might think that I'm a criminal, but you're an asshole. <laughs> like she doesn't give a fuck about it because she's seen one yeah, just one. And then at this moment when they're when they can see the the body heat tracking thing or whatever it is that they know that they're coming, they're like, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god." And we're all, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god." Yeah. Like we both uh, everybody, the audience and the characters kind of go through that together, which is nice because Ripley was so afraid of just one. Her, she was like, "Yeah, destroy the whole planet." Yeah. You know, and and then she has to she has to comprehend and deal with that and make a plan because Gorman can't do it. It's kind of a nice, subtle thing. And Gorman's inability to make a decision, Ripley steps right in. She assumes a leadership role right out of the gate, um, which is a little bit, you know, from a military's perspective, probably a little bit much, but it fits in perfectly with this, with the foreshadowing he's got for Gorman to be incompetent. And she's the one who winds up going in and saving a few characters. And that gets us through the battle, which is great, to an hour, 21 minutes in, and the classic line where Bishop says, somebody says, Ripley goes, Saw thousands of eggs, right? They're like, yeah. So who's laying all these eggs? Which is a question that never got addressed one time in an alien. And Bishop must be something we haven't seen yet. So Cameron's right hitting you right on the end of the nose. Um, and, and from here on out, the biology of the xenomorphs is great. It's a standard eusocial organism. You have a breeding queen. You have soldiers. You have different casts that go into it, which is kind of sad. Because then we get into his crazy, whack, funky biology and avatar. And that's just not the way anything would evolve ever. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. crazy. It's but woo. there is also this, which, t- which I think adds to the subtle tension, but never gets addressed in Alien or anything, Aliens or anything since, mm-hmm. um, is there's the moment where uh, Ripley realizes that Burke is trying to bring home uh, a, a facehugger mm-hmm. or a xenomorph or an egg or something. And this right. is before it all falls apart and he tries to he tries to have uh, Ripley and Newt impregnated with an embryo. Uh Um, And he's like, but think about it. We could all win. Don't you get it? It's a multi-million dollar operation. I was like, well, wait, what? Yeah, I know. That was great. That was great. (laughs) But of course you can't know that in 1986 or whatever it is. Like (laughs) You you are making a a leap, a reasonable leap, which I have no doubt Cameron did. And we're like, I 
It's nope. an atmosphere processor, and it sounds about as expensive as an F-14. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It made me. It was so very few things actually sort of pull me out of the. But that was when I was like, oh, Paul, yeah. oh, Paul Reiser, oh, Paul Reiser, <laughs> honey. And that's about an hour and twenty-two minutes in, and during that scene. Ripley calls him on the carpet. I just checked the log. Directive dated 61279, signed Burke Carter J. And I paused it. And again, I've seen this movie a hundred times. I've read a lot about it. Uh, what did we find out about when she says the date 61279 is what? Is the original theatrical release date of Alien. Yeah. It's very so nice. That old- is one of those Cameron... Easter eggs. It's so perfect and so tiny. And subtle. I didn't, I've not noticed it all this time. And we're charmed. We were both like, oh. Cool. Very cool. And also, you're like, I found that. <laughs> you know, very excited. Um, and then as the movie progresses, we get Bishop coming into his own, the android coming into his own as a heroic character, volunteering to do something selfless, which is Cameron, again, taking ownership of the the mythos at this point. Because yeah. in the first one, we had an android we didn't know was an android, and it was horrible, and deaths resulted, etc., and he's played that as a giant red herring. He's had Lance Henriksen, who plays the android, give the spooky dead-eyed stare and say weird shit uh-huh. and be fascinated with the aliens. You know, so we think he's going to do something bad, and it turns out he's not. So that's Cameron kind of like, here's this thing you've seen before, which will probably be bad. Oh, guess what? It's not. It's a good guy. Mm-hmm. An hour and 30 is where Cameron's um, action pacing really kicks in. And this has been a hu- another huge influence on my career, what I call the overlapping arcs of tension. Mm-hmm. He gives you an arc with that goes up, has a peak, and comes back down. But before that arc of tension comes back down, he's already started another arc. Yeah. So you, you've been trained for so long watching fiction, or reading fiction, watching movies. You get to see this thing, and then it comes down, and then you get a breather. And then you get right. to see this thing, or like... Um, and that fiction sort of travels like the stock market, where there's, there's a climax, and then a depression, and then climax, but it is always trending upwards yeah. toward the biggest one. And that is not the case here either. No. That, that these are catastrophic, and before you can recover from that, there's another catastrophe. And yes, yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty good analogy. Um, and he's playing with, and then we get into the classic line: "They cut the power. Mm-hmm. Look, they cut the power, man. They're animals." <laughs> Which was, I mean, to be uh, fair, they're sort of you social insects, kind of. And you guys will be surprised by this. I literally had to argue with Fox about this. They're like, like first, I'm like, well, how do I establish? Like in Dangerous Prey, they make decisions. They analyze, they observe things, they figure out what's going on, they make decisions, and they act. And I had people at Fox One like, well, they can't do that. They're not smart. And I'm like, they cut, they cut, the, they cut the power. Right. So the ability for them to cut the power means they have the ability to observe humans doing things. I'm not, and I, they don't have to go so far as they can analyze a system or smell power or anything weird. Like they have to, in the genre of the movie... They have to be able to observe things, watch people doing things, and then make large-scale rational assumptions about things. Well, if we do, if we break this thing, this other thing stops working, and they'll be at a handicap. That's yeah. huge. And then I'm going to say this, which is a little devil's advocate, because I am with okay. you. I think it's sort of huge. But the the decision that the aliens, the xenomorphs, cut the power mm-hmm. is a decision the humans make. Oh, they, that's what they assign to it. Yes. Okay. Which. I mean, considering that there's also the pressure valve going off and the whole thing is going to blow yeah. and, and half the system doesn't fucking work because it's, it's been all the, the um, stuff has been torn out of the conduits during fighting or alien acid melting from de- resulting in death and all that other stuff. The, sh- the, the whole thing is falling apart on its own. Okay. So it is possible, although I will say totally unlikely, mm-hmm. that the idea there was... Everything is already going to hell in a handbasket. They are 
they are dying, they are afraid, they are hurt. We're just going to add this. They're going to assign that to the xenomorphs, which makes them more rabble-rousy and wanting, like, let's fucking either kill them all or get the hell out of Dodge. But we don't actually know that the xenomorphs did that. We don't know. That's a good one. We don't know. Yeah. Although the timing I mean, is very I'll agree suspicious. with you. Yeah, I will say I think that they were right, but we never and that's part of, of Fox's whole mythos, right? We keep don't it, see keep anything. Keep it gray. Keep it yeah, one, keep it gray. Keep it gray and everything is from the human perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did there too. So So we get through the awesome battle scene where um, Hudson's redemptive arc. Hudson, of course, played by Bill Paxton. Rest in peace, Mr. Mm. Bill Paxton. You've entertained us so many ways. And it's just probably, it's still his greatest role ever. There's, it's iconic. It's huge. Um, but Hudson gets his redemptive arc where the aliens finally break in and it's a, it's a shit show. Everything fell apart and who steps up to the plate and it's laying waste to everybody and giving everybody else time to get away. It's Hudson. Oh, you want some, you want some too. And like, it's just, it's wonderful. So, yeah. and then, then he goes down with the, the fingers, the alien fingers across the face, getting pulled into the floor. Quite terrible. And then from the rest of the movie, we go back into the heart of darkness newt gets captured. Ripley is in com- full command now. As she's in full command, she orders, we're going to go back in. Yeah. And this is where it all falls apart for me. This is the part okay. we're going to brawl about. Okay. That is so not Ripley's, M.O. It's not who she is as a human. It's not who she is as a professional. It's not who she is as a paramilitary person. It is not who she is earlier in the movie when she's like, let them go. They're gone. But it's a baby, I guess. That's why the director's cut, which we're talking about, it makes makes so much more sense than the director's cut. She, in the director's cut, she has found a surrogate daughter and all of her maternal instincts that were torn away from her automatically apply to this orphan it makes and she's like you know i'd rather die than lose another kid and i understand that what i don't understand is why she is all of a sudden willing to risk and probably lose every other human it's a problem it's bullshit it's a problem because even when like hey man sergeant dietrich man their signals are real low but they're not dead man and like then we got to go back and get them she's like they're gone they're already being cocooned like the others they're gone exactly right doesn't it doesn't does not now i'll say this I adore Ripley, right? I adore Sigourney Weaver's job here, too. She does all of this. She's like 18 pounds and essentially see-through, right? So Mm -hmm. she doesn't have brawn because she's tiny. She doesn't have any makeup on. She doesn't have any special effects. She gets a little dirty and sweaty as it goes, but Mm -hmm. because she's in a cocoon in space for 57 years, she's managed by other things. She's exactly what she would be as a character, which Sigourney Weaver had to do as an actor. She doesn't have muscle mass. Right. She doesn't have any, she doesn't have a lot of strength. She's barely getting by mentally. And that's all consistent until this one movement. And she's like, we're going back. I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's bullshit. The internal consistency of her character in that arc is one of the other questionable plot moments. Although I've seen the director's cut so many times, it makes a little bit more sense. I agree. It makes a lot more sense if you watch the director's cut. And in this case, I think also the case of Blade Runner, I think the director's cut is the, if you have never seen it, is the oh, only yeah. one you if should you've never seen watch. it, watch the director's cut, yeah. which is almost three hours long. So doesn't so matter. Your time. You still do that. And so, also Kenneth Brown's Hamlet. If you watch the director's cut of that, it is four hours and twelve minutes okay. long. It's worth it. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna do a we're gonna do a watch along. We're, de- we're not. And we're not. <laughs> so an hour and fifty five minutes in, we get into absolute cinematic history. There is no question. This is one of the greatest moments in the history of film. We get to meet the egg layer. We mm. go. Uh, Ripley's got got Newt. And is in the middle of her getting her out of there, and she, there's explosions. She stumbles into everything, and we have fire and explosions and heavy breathing. And then she walks into this room, 
and almost all noise shuts off. The sirens shut off, there's no fire noise, it's dead quiet, which is jarring, and then you get this awesome slow reveal of the queen. We start out with an ovipositor, right? Who's mm-hmm. laying all these eggs? Snuffleupagus. The ovipositor looks like Snuffleupagus. It does look like Snuffleupagus. Yeah, yeah. maybe he knocked her up. You don't know. I mean, he we don't know that he's sneezing the, he. the eggs, though. <laughs> but yes, it's weirdly super duper creepy because you know what this is. You yeah. know this is the alien queen. You know she's laying eggs. And voicing you this know. little bit. Yeah. And then it looks sort of like Snuffleupagus. It does. <laughs> but it's really, it's from a script writing perspective, it is an absolutely genius moment because we don't start out like, we don't see the queen in all her glory. The question is, Who's laying all these eggs? The egg is the iconic image of this entire franchise, so we get to see an egg being laid. It's a great tie together. It is really great. And this is also the moment, not to put too fine a point on this point we were just talking about, of where Ripley, if you watch the director's cut, you know Ripley has a loss in her life of her child. Mm -hmm. And she is... Now, you know, she knows her, and it's not just that. Her entire life is gone, except for the fact that she's still breathing. Right. Everyone she ever loved, everything she was, all the prestige she had, because yep. we hear about that too, because she can be reinstated if she does all of this. Uh, all of a sudden, it becomes, um, I, I, this is too, too on the nose of what I'm trying to say, but it becomes m- mother against mother sort of. It right? is, no, it's great. Because yeah. she also stops talking anyone's sake. She says she pushes Newt back. It's all nonverbal. It's all nonverbal, which is exactly what the xenomorphs do. From our perspective, exactly what the xenomorphs do. So like she looks at the egg and then she looks at the ovipositor and then she looks at the eggs and then one, and then she's parsing it. And then there's a moment, it's gorgeous. It was really fun because I I don't have as many moments as you do where you've seen this a hundred times and now there's something new. Okay. But today there was one for me. I haven't seen it a hundred times, but I probably saw 20. Um, where you see the egg, the ovipositor, and then you see the structure that you event the chitin and stuff that you eventually uh, see. The egg sac. The, well, no, you see the chitin and stuff that eventually it is revealed that that is actually the alien queen when she unfolds. But then you see the egg sac and the movement of the eggs through it. Yep. And I thought, that's mommy. It, it, that's it, mommy from Nocturnal. It's, exact, it's great. I was so excited. That's exactly it. That, yeah. that scene was so influential. I watched that movie in a movie theater with Danny Baker, and that moment has stayed with me, and it, that's exactly it's, Nocturnal. And it was beautiful because I have never... I, we watched that movie two weeks ago, and yes. I didn't see it then, but because I'm always so charmed by the beaut- the really, really beautiful practical effect that the alien queen is. Mm-hmm. It's spectacular. And I missed that because right after that, she unfolds because she recognizes, rightfully so, that Ripley's There's a danger. threat. Yeah, yeah. Because Ripley is starting to behave differently and probably send out pheromones that are different and, and all of a sudden get very cautious and protective, just like she's being. Mm-hmm. And then there's that moment where they're kind of looking at each other and she kind of scales up. The alien queen sort of scales up and gets a little bigger. Mm-hmm. And then one of the eggs opens. Well, there's, there's a little bit, little bit before that, too. Like, there was a great point, the nonverbal, and Ripley's now communicating nonverbally. This is another problem I had with Fox. So Nocturnal that A referred to is my novel Nocturnal, which yeah. it's you, the mommy scene is a human version of the alien queen. It's gross and disgusting. Um, here's another scene. This scene establishes that at least the queen has higher intelligence than we can anticipate. Indeed. And the soldiers do too, because here's Ripley walking, accidentally standing five feet, 10 feet from the queen with a fully with a full weapon that works and they know it. And two soldiers who at this point have come all the Xenomorph soldiers have rushed in to get everybody. They come in, 
slow. So it's not that weapons, they've rushed weapons. They don't want to rush her because she's got a weapon in front of the queen. Exactly. Yeah. So they come in slow. And, and that, that, to be fair, I'm so sorry to cut you okay. off, but that could be nonverbal uh, communication between the queen and them. But could it's be still, it's that still requires a higher higher level of analysis. For, yeah. And then and then Ripley, all nonverbal still, blasts the fl- the flamethrower like you said, and then points it at the egg and the queen. Tell you see the queen tell the soldiers to back off. Yeah, it's so beautiful. That was again trying to talk to Fox. Be like, okay, I can accept that they don't have a language and technology, but they are they are smart. These are smart creatures that communicate, which is what that uh, hidden with um, dangerous praise is all about. Is how do they communicate? How do yeah. they communicate without having a, a fixed language? Yeah. So, did you get to finish your point there? Yeah. Well, that was sort of it. Like, and then from a. And from a viewer perspective, mm-hmm. I think this scene, I agree with you. I think totally, totally agree with you that this is such a brilliant, beautiful, beautiful scene that brings together a lot of great qualities that we still should have, We that, that make many movies great. Mm-hmm. Practical effects, camera, yep. Yep. lighting, um, sound effects and foley because she squishes backwards over all the sliminess. It's beautiful and it's really well put together. All through it, just, just it, for the characters, everything going to I mean, hell. Yeah. The alien queen thinks su- she suffers. The soldiers suffer. Newt suffers. Ripley suffers. All the eggs suffer. It's a horrific thing yes. to, to would when, have, when Ripley would goes have postal. Been to yeah, to live through that would have been horrible for any sentient thing or non sentient thing yeah. involved. Yeah, and it is brilliant. It and humanizes gorgeous. the alien queen. Like out of all this, we've seen nothing but these this slavering horde of monsters who kills everything they see. And this we, we see a mother with her children trying to protect her kind. Right. And it's it's almost two hours in the movie. It's it's great. And, so then, and the alien queen is doing exactly what Ripley is doing in that moment. Yeah. The, this, this one newt, this is my great white hope for the future. Mm-hmm. And she's like, this, this one clutch of 400 eggs, <laughs> this is my, and she's not wrong though, because she also, they, Ripley says very early on, no, 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 no. I didn't say they were on that planet. I say they landed there. Right. So they, she already knows, the queen already knows, although again, I'm not sure how well, but instinctively sort of knows she is alone and she has to do this and she has to survive because it is entirely possible if they die, their entire they, species As far dies. as they know, as yeah. far as I know. So then we get through, they, they get back on the, they get back on the ship, they get back up to the Sulaco and, um, we have the amazing fight and probably, you know, one of the top 10 lines in all of movie history, get away from her, you bitch. Mm-hmm. And then of course, mano a mano, well, it's not, it's woman on woman. They're going at it and they play. And, uh, oh, on the way out though, when she's leaving that scene with the queen, you have four minutes to reach maximum safe distance. It's exactly four minutes before it detonates but the time within is a little weird because at one point you're like it says you have two minutes to reach and you still have two minutes and 30 seconds left because that's how nerdy i am i timed it this time (laughs) but it finishes exactly at four minutes and then we get we see that amazing battle sequence at the end with the with the loader so much established the loader and Mm -hmm. everything else well and then there's the part where newt is inside ripley's inside and bishop is trying to navigate away from the dock the loading dock or whatever that they were on Mm -hmm. and like the landing gear or the edge of the ramp or something gets caught on just weird detritus that's in there yep and um you don't there's again no no exposition for us which is great but that is the moment that the alien queen 
boards the ship, right? Because yep. nobody's paying attention because there's only the three of them it's left. too much going on, yeah. Bishop is trying to fly away. Ripley is trying to protect Newt and get locked in. And then the second she does, she's like, Bishop, hit it! And they, he, you know, pulls away as, as the right. whole thing explodes. Right. Mm-hmm. But we have a callback to the alien soldier is smart, or the queen in this case is smart because we know she's out on that dock. Mm-hmm. The aliens are, the xenomorphs are smart enough because that's how... The initial lander dies. Is uh, one the, the the co-pilot walks up. He's like, "Wait a minute, what is this?" He's like, "Come on, get in here." She's, mm-hmm. you know, where had he stopped and said, "There's slimy shit on the de- the deck. That's a problem." Mm-hmm. Who knows what would have happened? But that doesn't happen because all the things going on at once, and that same thing happens again. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. precisely again. Except the alien queen is maybe a little smarter than a soldier and waits until she might be safe enough to survive mm-hmm. before she reveals herself, which is awesome, I think. Uh, and that's another small minor plot hole, but we won't talk too much about that one. Is she actually? Is she attached to the ship of the inside the? Is she inside the ship? To be protected in zero atmosphere when it goes up to the Nostro, to the Sulaco, or is she just kind of clinging on to it? So we don't know. I think she's in the landing gear myself. She's in the landing so she's, gear. She's sort of somewhat protected, and she's you know lower temperature kiteness thing. So it's I think what happens is she climbs up into the landing gear, then that gets retracted, right. and then that's and then of course it lands, and she's like, okay, and or who's hold to on. say she can't survive for X amount of time in zero atmosphere, right? Sure, you know, yeah. Ma'am, we are. This is a very long episode. It is. It is. It is. So, I'm. If uh, if we could, I'd like to get to the, the list of facts. Sure, let's do it. Do we have to do all all no, of them? No, we're just going to bra- bra- browse, breeze, breeze through this because some of them are really cool. Thank you, bloody disgusting, for providing us with this list. Like most films, the movie wasn't shot in sequence, but for added realism, James Cameron filmed the scene where we first meet the Colonial Marines last. So the where they're sitting together eating. He wanted to show that they have all this familiarity and camaraderie with each other. So after the everybody had spent all that time on set, months filming, he had that dining scene so they would feel Which very is close super together. fun because that's almost exactly what I said. Like you can tell that they've been yes. together for a long time, whatever, yes. and I didn't know that. That's great. So subtle. The spear gun Ripley used at the end of Alien is briefly visible in the opening scene. The one she used to shoot the alien out of the airlock, it's still stuck at the bottom of the escape pod door where it jammed 57 years earlier. So that scene where they cut the big hole in the sparking hole in the door, mm-hmm. it is right there. Uh, let's see. Sigourney Weaver's Best Actress Academy Award nomination for this movie was the first ever for an actress in a role in an action movie. Wow. Yes. Uh, It wasn't the first Best Actress nomination for a horror movie because that was Ellen Burstyn for her performance in The Exorcist. Weaver lost to Marley Maitland for her performance in Children of the Lesser God. That was a good movie. Mm -hmm. The Alien Screams are baboon shrieks. Interesting. Yes, the alien screams are baboon shrieks, and they're modified in post, slowed down in post. Um, to you mentioned the wonderful practical effects of the alien queen. To bring the alien queen to life would take anywhere between fourteen and sixteen operators. I mean, it has to be because all of her arms are probably each is um, a separate guy, right? Separate guy, probably because they're articulated because they all move differently. So they're articulated multiple articulations, mm-hmm. and I think each one could be controlled. And then there has to be, what, two people in the torso? At least. And then or, probably yeah. the head itself. Wires. Yeah. Oh, quick note. Um, when you finally see the queen, the elevator scene, when Ripley's going out, mm-hmm. and Newt, Newt, Ripley and Newt are going out, and the alien queen comes in towards the elevator shaft, a really subtle touch that just shows how on the ball Cameron was, she's not slimy at all. 
she's completely the queen is completely dry because she has come through all the fire to come after Ripley. So nice. all the slime yeah. has dried away. It's cool. The, in the director's cut, the portrait of Ripley's daughter is uh, Elizabeth Ingalls, Sigourney Weaver's mother. Nice. How so, cool. And I thought, I always thought, oh, they CGI'd Sigourney. That's her mom. That's her mom. That's great. Is it, well, now that you said, going back to the one right before that, that's interesting because I have not thought about the alien queen. Part of the reason she's chasing Ripley is because now she knows her whole species is dying. She needs hosts. She needs hosts. And yeah. those are the only two available hosts. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I had never thought about that. She's got to get up. She knows she Which has to get Which is why them. she has to try or die try Do it or die trying. Right. And even that's when she's awesome. up on the Nostromo... Or the Sulaco, excuse me. She's up on the Sulaco. If she she's got to get she's got to get those two people, otherwise, right? She's and she can't. Toast. But she has to wait until they're safely <clears throat> landed to mm-hmm. do that as well. Because if she doesn't get those two people, Good point. Even, or if she kills them just to. But it's interesting to go back to the how much higher language skills do they have or analytical skills mm-hmm. do they have uh, discussion? That is that doesn't take a lot. She's not she's not getting revenge, which Ripley is sort of getting revenge. I mean, she's also being very protective, but she's mm-hmm. sort of getting revenge for oh, the yeah. whole crew That's and the everything. Whole, yeah. the whole scene where she's blowing up all the yeah, eggs you in the fire. That's face. revenge. She kind of, the decision you tilt. see when she tilts her head. Exactly. It's awesome. Exactly. It's awesome. When she's yeah. like, ah, fuck it. And, um, but that I don't think has anything to do with the alien queen, the alien queen's motivation. I think she's trying to save her species. Yep. That's awesome. Budget constraints meant that they could only afford to have six hypersleep capsules in the scene set aboard the Sulaco. So that's when the uh, Marines first wake up and the mm-hmm. things open up. Clever placement of mirrors and camera angles made it look like there were 12 because nice. each hypersleep chamber cost $4,300 to build. That seems like a lot. It does. Uh, Aliens was never shown to test audiences because editing was not completed until the week before its theatrical release. Dude, we have been there. We've been there in production yeah. schedules and that stinks. It sucks. But what's fascinating about that is Alien, the first Alien movie, is broke the mold because you don't see the monster until the very end. And it's right. the imagining what it is that makes it so horrifying. They actually shot all the scenes with the monster coming up on people, but the practical effects were so bad that they just decided to cut it. Yeah. They showed it to audiences and audiences were laughing. And they were like, oh, we're screwed. Ridley Scott's like, we're totally screwed. What are we going to do? They're like, just cut out all the scenes people were laughing at. And that... That desperation move with the test audience wound up making it one of the greatest horror movies of all the time. Now, this is a little known fact. Uh, (laughs) It's a fact I should know. It's a fact you should know. James Horner, the composer of this classic soundtrack, hates the soundtrack. He hates it. You had said that. I'm surprised. Yes. He had six weeks to put the whole thing together. Um, And they were still editing for the first three of those six weeks. So he had to start putting it together before he saw the completed film. So he didn't even get to like, because, you know, they write these things while they watch the movie and kind of map everything. Sure. So he literally had three weeks of mapping his music to the finished, to close the finished product. However, I think he should be okay. It did earn earn him an Academy Award nomination. Right. And then he and Cameron would not work together again until Titanic. It's nice that they work together again. It is. That they sorted it out. The word fuck is used 25 times in the film, 18 of them by Hudson. I think I might have used the word fuck in this podcast more times than you, and almost 18. <laughs> I love that. Bloody Disgusting is a great site, bloodydisgusting.com. And underneath they say, thank you, Bill Paxton. Thank you for everything you do in Aliens, because everybody just loves his role so much. 
the full-size Alien Queen puppet was actually too big to fit in the elevator. So for the shot where she's seen there, her tail's removed, and yet the back of the elevator still had to be open to accommodate the prop. So they fixed it with smoke effects, dark lighting, and a black curtain for the back of it. So what we what we now see is this classic scene, this slow reveal of the queen coming out. And you watched it. When you yeah. watched it, you're like, oh, my God. Like, you know, like, you've seen it before. It's still such a powerful moment when she comes out of that elevator yeah. that was uh, smoke, fake lighting, and a black curtain. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just totally awesome. Um, and there's a lot of politics on this on the set. James Cameron faced a big problem trying to win his confidence and respect to the British crew, many of them who had worked on Alien and were fiercely loyal to Ridley Scott. In order to get to try and convince them he had the talent and skills for the job, he arranged a screening of the Terminator for the crew on set to demonstrate his abilities. However, most of the crew ignored the invite and didn't bother to turn up. Mm. They actually paused Aliens to let him shoot Terminator, which is completely unheard of at the time. And he was... Not he was not a, he had the script he had written was so lights out and the studio wanted him so bad and he said I've got a prior commitment and they're going and I have to go shoot Terminator they put aliens on hold for him to finish Terminator yeah and you know I wonder in not just the the movie making industry but I wonder in lots of industries if things have changed as like your success kind of reins you in a little bit more because it's especially true in the music business forty years ago you know. Born to Run, which I think is, I know this is a little bit of a the detraction. Bruce, the Bruce Springsteen It's record. the Bruce Springsteen, yes. right? Born to Run is, is, is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's also his third, second album. Is it? I don't or know. Third? Don't second know, or third? I don't know the man's work. Um, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey was the first one. And, it was, and it's good and has great songs on it, but it isn't that. Mm-hmm. And today, I don't think he'd get to, to Born to Run. I don't think he'd have the money, like the, the backing of the studio. Right. And it's the same thing as James Cameron. If James Cameron were coming up today, and there's surely a movie maker who is as brilliant and as visionary as James Cameron, who's 19 today. Mm-hmm. And doesn't have a ton of experience, but absolutely is that brilliant. They're not going to get a shot at, hey, can you put this multi-million dollar thing yeah. on hold for a few months because I got another thing I got to do? They're not going to get that because there's just too many people, too much risk, too many options involved now, maybe. Uh, here's a multi-layered uh, thing. Joseph Conrad wrote The Heart of, the Heart of Darkness. Indeed. And Sulaku, Sulaco, excuse me, is the name of the ship in Aliens. The, the name of the ship in Aliens is the name of the town in Joseph Conrad's novel, novel Nostromo, which many of you may recognize awesome. as the name of the ship in the original Aliens. That's fun. How about one more? One more. Okay. Uh, a lightweight... Hold on. I got, it's got to be a good one. It's got to be a good one. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now I'm wondering what lightweight Shit. thing. Shit. Uh, oh, okay. This one. I got I to say this one, and we won't talk about it, but I'll just drop it. Okay. The crew was so openly hostile to both James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd, whom they openly mocked by claiming she wasn't the real producer and only got the credit because she was married to Cameron. Gail Ann Hurd, of course, has gone on to do many things, including The Walking Dead. I the wonder most how successful... often she works with any of that crew again. <laughs> Probably not so much. It's that, like that moment in Pretty Woman where Julia Roberts was like, big, big mistake. mistake. Big. big mistake. <laughs> That's great. Okay, we've gone over an hour. <laughs> Excuse me. We've gone over an hour, and I think that we have said, um, I could talk about this movie for another two hours. No problem. But we got other work to do, so we're going to yes. get out of here. If you guys ever, any of you guys go to Sigler Fest, buy me a beer, ask me to talk to you about aliens. I'll talk about it all day long. Yeah. 
Also, you could buy him a beer and ask him to do almost anything else at Sigler Fest, and he will probably, <laughs> as long as it's legal to do in public, he will probably comply. I probably will. So I think that is a wrap on yes. episode 17 of Story Smack. If you have questions, as always, for Scott or me, or a topic you'd like us to discuss on a future episode of Story Smack, please just email it. Email us at info at emptyset.com. You can find us both online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is Scott Sigler, facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Yes. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find us online at scottsigler.com slash story We would love to see your comments there. You can um, find Scott online or the audiobooks online at Scott. Uh, Sigler audiobooks if you search that yes. in iTunes and if you subscribe you'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday and a big hit of Story Smack every Friday and you can even go get uh, Nocturnal which is up there and exactly you can right. get to the point with mommy and it's a very spooky spooky scene yeah so we will be back next week please come back and join us again and thank you all so much talk okay. to y'all real soon bye Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.